Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's right on four o'clock and it is time for Tuesday home time and I'll be here until four, from four until six this afternoon. Jan Bartlett. Today, proposed closure of Oceanic Gold's Didipio mine in the Philippines. I'll be speaking with Peter Murphy. Their monthly report on anti-war activities, etc., with Dr Margie Beavis, the President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. Environmental activist Lee Tan visits Mongolia, Singapore and Hong Kong. And another monthly activist diary this time, Against All Things GM with Bob Phelps, who's the director of the Gene Ethics Network, and also Oceana Gold, a victory for El Salvador against Pacific Rim Oceana Gold. And I'll be talking with Kevin Bracken from the MUA. But first, Mr. Kevin Healy, and here he is. A week, Jade, listener, when the coalition of the killing, US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo George W. Bash the workers, Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, big supremo Tiny Blyer, and our very own little bald-headed bloke who used to be big supremo back in the last dark ages, pat themselves on the back and so admire their handiwork as they cherish the liberty, freedom and democracy, the liberation they have brought to the Middle East. It only took a few weeks for me to announce mission accomplished on that train killer thingy with the big sign, which thankfully wasn't an upside-down comic, and that renowned comic, the little bald-headed bloke, commenting on the ongoing mopping-up operation involving only a few thousand deaths and injuries and displacements of the ever-grateful liberated people, told us... The problem is, uh, oh yes, uh, nothing whatever to do with the uh, coalition of the killing, because uh, IS wasn't even there when we invaded, uh, sorry, liberated, it really wasn't. You haven't thought of visiting Mosul, Aleppo, all the areas involved in the mopping up operations to allow the people to thank you for what you've done for them? I'd be happy to talk to them by a video link for no more than, say, $500,000. I really would. And on the Smash the Evil Union's Jackboots Con mission, Bill, we reported last week the sad, sad news that dear baby Jesus family fast party Senator Bob Deity had to resign because of the greed and avarice and criminal behaviour of evil unions thinking their role is to represent workers, forcing his housing non-construction company to deconstruct. Well, good, good news. Bob has announced he won't resign until after he has voted for the Smash the Evil Union's Jackboots Con mission. And I want people to know that as a building industry caring employer, well, former caring employer, I have no vested interest in smashing the evil unions other than that evil unions are evil. The dear baby Jesus hates them with Christian love. And I said on this segment just last week, I would do what I can for the thousands of families who have gone broke by giving their home loans to me. Do what I can by praying for them. 
it seems the Dear Baby Jesus Family Fast Party, so-called because many families have no choice but to fast thanks to Bob, will take a month or so to decide on Bob's successor, choosing the person, and Bob said he wants to ensure it chooses the candidate of his choice. He really said that. So you are a firm advocate of party democracy, Bob. Well, we practice what we preach, the dear baby Jesus family, the whole family, including the blessed mother in the kitchen and looking after the dear little children, has a say, and the man democratically, as determined by the dear baby Jesus, makes the decision. And that neutral, all things to all people, especially caring employer people, Nick Xenophobe, not a grey hair on his very, very black modest head, Nick raised a serious concern about the legislation. Showing he cares for workers, I hear. Well, not quite. Nick is concerned for poor caring employers who may be caught up. Again, I hear for underpaying, killing, injuring, unfairly dismissing, exploiting generally. No, no, that's all okay. That's, that's all legal. No, Nick's concern for caring employers who may get caught up by making concessions to the evil union and lazy, avaricious workers. Why do we get the feeling Nick's vote can't be 100% relied on? And the one notion lot, that repository of Mensa intelligence, says, why aren't we surprised, it will support the smashing the evil union's legislation because it's a matter of freedom. No, no idea. Maybe if we lock up all evil unionists, all evil construction workers, they'll be free or we'll be free or caring employers will be free or... Malcolm, if the workers are all free in jail, who will do the work? There's no such thing as climate change. It's a UN of the US of the UN of the world long-haired commie conspiracy. And that appalling Hoonsun says the massive budget deficit is, deficit is down to paid parental leave. Yet, despite their thinking person solutions to the big issues, there are still long-haired commie greedy critics who reckon they're idiots. On climate change was isn't, the Minister for Energy and something else, what, what is he again? Oh yes, saving the planet with fossils, Josh Friedem Icebergs, will introduce legislation to prevent the anti-fossil Luddites access to the courts if they intend to use the law, a clear abuse of the legal system. These people are abusing the legal system by opposing, by delaying, by preventing jobs and development and investment. The environment protection legislation was never intended for this purpose. Yes, what was the intention? To protect caring employers, ensure all this employment, development and investment could proceed. It is ludicrous, it is anti-True Blue Aussie to suggest the world's great resource corporations would undertake investment and development and generate jobs if they thought for one second their activities would affect the environment. They can't be blamed and we can't hold up great investment opportunities just because, oh, so occasionally, accidents will happen. I say that in my capacity as Energy Supremo. And as the saving the world with fossil supremo, that's to prevent access to the courts if you're going to raise long-haired commie environment issues bit bit of furor in Canberra over this most useful of killing assets, the Death Adler.
An asset Liberal Democrat Senator David Laying them low says is essential to remove feral pests from society. So what ferals did you have in mind, David? Well, the obvious ferals are evil union bosses, evil union members, evil workers who are thinking of becoming evil union members, evil workers who may sometime in the future think that way, dull bludgers, pension sponges, anti-progress environment groups, in other words, the warmest, that kind of feral we need to eradicate to have a liberal, dumb society. Hear, 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 big Supremo Malcolm and his Peter says a tiny a bit more for the bosses, hear, hear. How dare you hear, hear, David unheard. You ratted on me. No, I didn't, he did, Malcolm pointed at Tiny. I have been most grievously misrepresented, most grievously misrepresented. No, I didn't, he did, pointing at we know who. And let me add, Tiny added, one more feral to the list, him, meaning we know who. And I would add him, Malcolm pointed at Tiny again, showing there was a sort of agreement. But while the caring business class party was showing these small signs of disunity, it was all love and hugs and warm fuzzies and triumphant celebrations in the Socialist Party over the selection of Kimberly Kitching Cabinet to step into the Senate, where she said she would continue the great work for Victoria of her predecessor, Stephen Conman, extreme, extreme, extreme right-wing numbers person who nonetheless thinks Kimberly is too right-wing or perhaps weighed down on the right by lots of baggage. But I thought, if she is going to continue Stephen's great work, she won't have to do anything. And the week that was wants to scotch those silly stories that Kimberley wrote the votes for all the members of the selection panel on their behalf because they were too stupid to pass the vote test, even if the result shows they were. Let's make it clear she has not been charged with any offence over her selection and she has the unflinching support of Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Little Billy Shorten Ambition who also gave his unflinching support to Kevin and Julia and, and Kevin. Little Billy got up in Parliament and attacked Malcolm for plotting against Tiny, and I thought, surely he'd have the decency to get someone else to launch an attack on someone for stabbing someone in the back, the hands-dripping blood bit. But then Kimberly and her partner, Andrew Landieu in it, and Sophie and little Billy, I think it's her name, Sophie, are close, close friends. And we can but imagine the empathy for the downtrodden which would dominate their dinner party conversations. Well, the word red would probably be discussed in some detail as they whip out another cork or unscrew another bottle. We unscrew the bottle and screw the workers. <laughs> they could have a really good laugh. Speaking of screw, Donald and the big debate. Nah, not worth it. Definitely not screwed the now former number two lawman known from yesterday as Just Out, praised by Malcolm and the team as doing the honourable thing. It is obvious Attorney General George Brandy's brain did not mislead Parliament. He says so in his written opinion. It is obvious he consulted with then just in, now just out. He, he just didn't mention the relevant matter. Honourable with the appropriate qualification they qualified. Qualification 
Well, we are talking about lawyers. Thought we might seek George and Just Out's respect of written opinions on honourable, but finally realised we couldn't afford it. So are they all. All honourable men, Mark Antony described the assassins as he whipped up the crowd to take to the streets against them. And in that context, we agree. George Brandy's brain is an honourable man. So are they all. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. It's becoming increasingly difficult to ignore the pronouncements of the new Philippines President, Rodrigo Duterte, likening himself to Adolf Hitler, noting that Hitler had murdered millions of Jews. Quote, There are three million drug addicts in the Philippines. I'd be happy to slaughter them. Unquote. And, of course, threatening to break off relations with the US. But it's an announcement on the 27th of September, mainly ignored by the mainstream media, that as many as 23 mines, or 75%, must show cause to avoid shutdown due to claimed environmental lapses. And one of those is the Australian-owned mine at Didipio, where, according to local residents, murders and environmental damage have been occurring for many years. I spoke last week with Peter Murphy, who is a member of the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines, and that's a global network of organisations outside the Philippines concerned with the human rights situation in the Philippines and committed to campaigning for just and lasting peace in the country. I asked Peter first how the announcement by the Philippines government related to Oceana Gold and its Didipio mine. Well, the... Uh Secretary of the Department of Environment and National Resources, Natural Resources, it's a woman called Gina Lopez, has suspended, I think now 20 different uh, open-cut mining companies in the Philippines. Most of them have been nickel miners, but one of them has been Oceana Gold's gold and uh, I think it's gold and copper deposit uh, at Didipio in the north-eastern uh, side of Luzon. Uh, so it's, a, it's the province of Nueva Vizcaya. So I think uh, first she ordered that the proposed expansion of the mine project be suspended. That was explorations beyond the current ore body, which were disrupting farming and other activities. That stopped. And now it's uh, also happened that the whole mine project has been ordered to stop operations for now. And the main reason is for non-compliance with environmental standards and uh, to some extent uh, non-compliance with you know, getting the proper community agreement. So uh, I think at this stage it's still unclear how this is all going to play out because suspensions can be lifted and if certain things are changed and uh, it could well be that this gold mine will continue to operate. Not enough information has come through yet about that. Well, what's changed? Is it just the change of government or because people have been complaining about many issues about this mine for years and years? Yeah, um, it's been, it's been a, an issue since the early 1990s, so it's a long time. And the mine has only been operating for the last three years. So it's uh, 
you know, a relatively long, long campaign by the company or several different companies as it was to, to get the mine going. The big difference I think is clear is the election of the Duterte government and uh, in particular his appointment of Gina Lopez as the relevant cabinet minister or cabinet secretary. She, as the secretary, is, is a very different personality with a different outlook on the environment and on life, I think, uh, compared to all previous uh, appointments to this position. So she's definitely brought a new view and uh, she seems to have the confidence of the president. So she's got uh, significant authority to take the steps she has and I think there's been some alarm from the Chamber of Mines in the Philippines and, and from uh, even from the Australian Embassy and also the company itself, Oceana Gold. But they've been fairly muted. They are talking as if, well, first of all, they do comply with uh, all the relevant standards and second, that they're sure, you know, the mining can continue. So I think they're trying to figure out just what's going on themselves and, and what they should do to enable their projects to continue. Just give us an idea, Peter, of the the problems that the locals have identified over those years. You know, there's been so many different things happened, Jan, but I think the biggest things is once the mine started to uh, operate, it destroyed a hill, which was called the Dinky Dye Hill. It was sort of the centre of the ore body, and it was particularly rich in gold. So the hill was destroyed and then the open cut descended below the surface of the surrounding countryside from there. And an enormous amount of uh, tailings was developed, uh, aggregated from that process and the flow of uh, polluted water from the tailings dam into the main uh, river there, which goes down to another river and then into the Cagayan River, which is the major river in that whole region of the Philippines with huge farming uh, dependency on it so it's water pollution so the uh, in the immediate area crops don't grow people can't use the water animals can't drink the water and uh, downstream there's a uh, great concern about the impact on farming so uh, there's that and then the second big thing is that the taxes paid by the company this is a dispute because the mine is on the border of two different provinces and so the company is they're saying, well, we won't be paying any taxes to the uh, provincial governments because they can't agree on who will get the tax. And uh, under the uh, financial and technical uh, uh, agreement that they have with um, the federal, the national government of the Philippines, they have a tax holiday that can claim back all expenditures against any income for several years. So that, as far as we know, the company's never paid any tax. Well, in a report... I read that the company says that during the past three and a half years, taxes and royalties of 70 million US dollars have been paid. Well, I'd I'd love to see the accounts that really spell out how that's happened. There may be a royalty that is paid at the national level, but I doubt that it's 70 million dollars. When I first became aware and, and I visited the site, which was in the year 2001, the company was saying what a great uh, corporate friend of the community was and uh, to demonstrate this it provided one midwife and two school teachers and that that was its way of saying it had done its duty by uh, the community and at that time there'd been one mining engineer had died of gunshot wounds the guy who shot the helicopter and, and thereby hit him in the leg had uh, been chased, hunted down and 
you know, riddled with you know hundreds of bullets. So people had already fled. Uh, the community was divided, and then even some of those people who supported the mine and had made some arrangement to transfer their land or their property to the mining company, their houses were all bulldozed overnight, and uh, I think three or four people were killed. And this would be in the year 2003, 2004. So, th- so there's enormous uh, anger and, and um, pain really in the community from that episode as well. And anyway, it's, it's continued on. You know, the tailings dam was going to be in one location then they decided to, without any extra approvals, to massively increase the size of the mine and therefore another huge area of farming land had to be converted to a tailings dam. Things like this have been very much resented by the community. And this is the mining company that won the most environmentally responsible mining company yeah. in the Philippines. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, one of those sort of uh, satirical aspects of life in the Philippines that the grossest outrageous behaviour gets dressed up in, a, in an incredible award. It's just a, a sort of tragic aspect of it, but I think uh, any uh, independent observer looking at this type of thing would say, would realise, you know, it's a charade. The whole thing is, is a fairly crude, plundering operation without any real regard for the environment or the community that's impacted. How long do you believe it will be before we'll have a a definite answer of what will be happening in the future? I really can't be sure at all. There's a lot of speculation about, well, what's really going to happen to the Duterte government as a whole. I personally feel that uh, Gina Lopez is is probably fairly strong in uh, her position. She herself comes from a very powerful family that owns a major media company therefore has got significant political weight in the country and in a way her appointment is a fairly savvy um, alliance building operation by President Duterte. So I think she's going to be around for a while and therefore she will have to be convinced that sufficient changes have been made in mining operations to lift the suspensions. It could be that things go the other way in the really more extreme or irretrievable situations that um, the mines will, will actually be shut. That's a prospect that you know none of the major players are talking about, but I guess it's one that they privately are uh, thinking, well, this could happen as well. Can you expand on what you just said then about the uncertainty of the future of the Duterte government? Well, I think uh, it's 100 days, you know, it's just passed. And so there's been a few different uh, assessments written, including in our own media in Australia. Uh, What's highlighted by most of the mainstream criticism is, or writing, is the drugs war and the huge body count and the obvious human rights abuses associated with that. And to some extent, there's also a focus on the erratic and surprising statements and crude language used by President Duterte in relation to President Obama or the United Nations or even the Pope and the sort of uh, flip-flopping of statements. So uh, one day it's, uh, the President is really abusing President Obama, the next day he's apologised for it. One day he says we won't be having any more military cooperation with the US Navy in the South China Sea and the next day he's saying we will. One day he says uh, I'm ordering all the US Special Forces out of Mindanao and the next day someone else in his government says, no, they're staying. You know, this is a behaviour which doesn't do President Duterte any credit, starting to build a sort of a 
consensus, uh, I suppose, in the international community that he's not a really good person to be the leader of the Philippines and they'll be isolating and cold-shouldering him and his uh, administration. You know, that, that would be making it easier for opponents of Duterte inside the country to organise a political strategy to bring his presidency to an early end. And if that happened, of course, then you know his cabinet would be over too. <laughs> Again, it's very early days, and the, the trouble for all those critics is that President Duterte remains very popular, despite the, the, the terror, really, of the, of the uh, drugs campaign. Where does China fit into all of this? I think that China is uh, clearly one big element of the international challenges facing uh, President Duterte. Because of the competing claims in the South China Sea, the sense of, and it's really accurate, that the Philippines is a very weak country in military terms to stand up to China if there's going to be an argument about the paracels or, you know, the different shoals and uh, reefs that are being contested. But uh, I think for now, President Duterte is, uh, first of all, completely uh, I think wholehearted in his assertion of Philippine sovereignty over the disputed waters and uh, reefs and uh, little islands. He won't be backing down on that, but he's, he's also saying he, he won't uh, allow the Philippines to be the sort of battlefield between US and Chinese military forces. And so he's going to be using the, the international uh, court decision in, in his country's favour to, I think, pursue an independent negotiation with China. That is, that he'll take part in talks with China over these problems without the US being present. That's a uh, move which very much troubling the United States government and its military people in particular. You know, we, it's hard to predict how this is going to go, but clearly China is responding in a fairly calm way. You know, they, They're not making trouble for Duterte, and I think they're trying to talk with him about well, what can really work. There's, there's a few different things that can happen because the Philippine sovereignty is, is obviously a, a crucial issue, but the Philippines really wants to have fishing, traditionally done by Filipino fishing people, to continue, and, and it has been disrupted by the Chinese pressure. I'm pretty sure that there's a negotiation going on about the return of the Filipino fishing boats. Things like that can defuse and delay any sort of big uh, argument about the overall outcome of this dispute. And hopefully the deeper dynamics of the dispute will become more apparent, and which I think are to do with US military presence in the South China Sea and not Philippines' presence in the South China Sea or Malaysian or Indonesian uh, you know, this, and the Vietnamese too. I hope that that can happen, but it's, it's very fraught. And I think uh, here in Australia, there's you know, competing voices from the Labor Party and the Liberal government you know, about what to do. And these Australian voices are not paying any attention to the Philippine people or their interests. They're really, I think, just being surrogates for different voices in the US military. So it's a troubled area and uh, one where I think overall we should be trying to encourage all sides to be cool, to to reduce the belligerent language and the belligerent activities. Is it a bit going a bit too far to say that he could threaten Asia's stability, as one commentator said? Well, it's such an outrageous exaggeration, I suppose, that kind of comment. You know, the Philippines, it's got an armed forces which is mostly deployed against its own people, a navy which is incredibly weak, and an air force which is also incredibly weak. So it's actually not a threat to anyone except its own people. 
the idea that somehow it could destabilise all of Asia because it, presumably this is what they mean, because it uh, doesn't uh, cooperate with the US military anymore is also a bit of a joke. The threat there really is that it can be demonstrated. Maybe the Philippines will demonstrate that you can have an independent view and act independently of the United States and, and, the, and the sky doesn't fall down and therefore may encourage a more independent outlook from Indonesia and Malaysia to other players which are deeply engaged in this problem with China. Vietnam, of course, has got a strong sense of its own independence and uh, a long history of abrasive relations with China. The uh, Vietnamese will all also, through this period, be a good example of... Uh, a country or a nation which can think through its, its objectives and, and advise its own plans without having to do whatever the US uh, asks it to do. And what are the representatives of the working class saying? I think they're pretty frustrated, the trade union people in the Philippines, uh, because their expectations were raised when President Duterte, in the campaign before the election and then afterwards, said that he would end contractual labour, which is really the sort of word used for all the precarious employment uh, situations, which is huge in the, in the Philippines. So, you know, what we would call casual, short-term, temporary, part-time, zero-hour contracts, all, all, all these uh, weird traineeship, apprentice rates and, and all of that. This has uh, really been used to more or less to crush the trade union movement and to make it extremely hard for the workers to bargain with their employers. And so the wage rates are very, very low in the Philippines. And the main thing that people are looking for here is to be able to organise and bargain. The minimum wage in, in Manila, which is the highest minimum wage rate in the country, you know, comes down to about $1.20 an hour. Australian, it's like 15 times less than the Australian minimum wage. It's, it's impossible. Even if you're on the minimum wage in, in Manila, you know, you might be able to eat, eat and you might be able to have clothes and the shelter you get will be fairly much a shanty town. It's only if you can bargain to get the minimum wage or above the minimum wage that you, you start to be able to be able to take care of medical needs, clothing and children's education and so on. So the people are very desperate for a chance. The rhetoric's been there from President Duterte, but there's been no progress. And as you can imagine, the employers would be absolutely adamant that this won't be happening. And so I think this would be one of the more significant struggles during this presidency and I guess the union people are pretty realistic about that just you know, looking to maximise the fact that the president seems to have some sympathy for them and has appointed into the Department of Labour and Employment two, two officials who are really clearly pro-worker. Let's see you know, how this goes but I know that the, the union people have been starting to hold educational events, fairly large ones and trying to unite all the different factions of the union movement to have one united approach on this because they, they all really need that. Uh, so there's some good dynamics underway but no real progress yet. But is there also a great climate of fear? If so many people have been killed in just 100 days, there must be many, many people living on the edge. Yes, I haven't got a clear feel for this, Jan. I think uh, what we're seeing is a lot of very poor people that is, people actually not in the formal workforce at all who are being the victims of the drug purge. It's hard to keep up with the figures. So, it's thousands and thousands. Probably now, by now we're into the 6,000 figure and over half of them will have been killed by vigilantes or unknown people, but almost half will have been killed by the police. Really, 
a terrifying thing at that at that, that level. I think that in those communities where the drug business is rife, where there's a lot of users, I think there yes, there will be fear. It's absolutely abhorrent because these people are so poor. They have little real leverage. In fact, they've got little real organisation, and that's why you're not seeing you know concerted political protests about this. People who are used to protesting about human rights, yes, they're still also suffering uh, killings, arbitrary arrests and uh, harassment and surveillance, but nothing like on the scale of the people affected by the drug purge. There's a sort of growing wave of um, criticism of uh, Duterte and really for my own friends in the trade union movement, they, from the start of this, they've been absolutely revolted and sickened by what's going on. And they, they know that... This type of thing, uh, which seems to have the you know, continuous blessing of the president, just makes the police and the military feel like they can do anything and, and they'll never be held to account for it. And, of course, in the past, the main victims of this have been m much more political activists, trade unionists, peasant leaders, women's activists, even clergy, lawyers, local government councillors, journalists, you know... Thousands of them have been killed in the past, but uh, our media never reported that, virtually never. It's a bit ironic to me that now that every day we get reports of human rights abuses in the Philippines because I guess the main reason is that the United States government really doesn't like President Duterte. So it's a you know, completely different attitude. You know, we, we've had to dwell on the difficulties that the, the, uh, the mining... Uh, suspensions is, is very welcome and positive, you know. But there's also been uh, actually a ceasefire between the, the military and the New People's Army now for over a month, and that's going to continue. Good progress has been made in the official peace talks between the National Democratic Front and the government of the Philippines. These talks have taken place in Oslo. The guts of these talks now is actually about dealing with poverty and uh, there's already an agreement about human rights, which people can really prosecute a bit more firmly now. It's not all negative, even though no one would want to be an apologist for the Duterte government. But there are some other dynamics going on which are very welcome and positive for the people and their rights, as well as these very negative things. And you've been speaking, not speaking, I've been speaking, to Peter Murphy, who's a trade union and peace activist human rights activists in Sydney, speaking of a situation in the Philippines. And part of that interview looked at the Didipio mine in the Philippines owned by Oceana Gold, where human rights and environmental degradation has been happening for quite a while. Later on in the program, Kevin Bracken will be talking about Oceana Gold and a victory for the people of El Salvador in a case brought by Oceana Gold Pacific Rim against um, that country because they refused to give them a licence to, well, as people say, a licence to pollute their country even more. You're listening to 3CR. You could be listening on your digital 3CR on your old radio 8.55am or streaming on 3cr.org.au or you could be putting it away to listen whenever you feel like with a podcast, which I think I get for about six weeks. So that's 3cr.org.au. And this is Melbourne Community Radio 3CR. Unemployed? Underemployed? 
Receiving Social Security? Getting bullied, penalised or harassed by your job agent or Centrelink? The Australian Unemployed Workers Union is for you. You have rights. Find out more or get involved by going to our website on unemployedworkersunion.com or by calling our National Advocacy Hotline on 03 83 It's time to fight back. A 3CR supporter. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. And now our monthly report by Dr Margie Beavis, the President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War on all things nuclear, peace, anti-war. And Margie, first the latest in meetings at the UN on efforts to ban nuclear weapons. What is the latest? The story so far is that after a decade of ICANN and a number of other groups working very hard to educate governments about the appalling damage nuclear warfare would do, we're now at the stage where the United Nations is going to have a vote as to whether we should start negotiating banning these weapons. And these, I mean, we have a ban on cluster munitions, we have a ban on landmines and chemical weapons and biological weapons, but these are the worst of the weapons of mass destruction and they are still legal. At the end of this month, in the United Nations, at the first committee in New York, uh, there'll be a vote, and 126 countries have signed a pledge supporting negotiations for a banned treaty. And given there's 194 countries all told in the UN, the numbers are looking pretty good, but with all these things, with a vote, it ain't over till it's over. But So at the end of this month, there'll be a vote, and if that vote goes ahead of the first committee, then it will go through to the United Nations General Assembly in December and be voted on there. And if that all happens, we will actually have these weapons made illegal and that would just be a triumph. We're closer to nuclear disarmament than we've been for several decades and it is really, really exciting. As at MAPW, we're just tickled pink. We've just got every digit cross is going to go right and um, it's a combination of the work of a huge number of people over a very, very long time. It would in fact kick off now then another decade of work because once we've made them illegal... Firstly, that would stop a lot of investment. I mean, just to give you an example, the Americans are going to spend over 300 million, 300 billion, sorry, not million, 300 billion in the next decade making new nuclear weapons. But once they become illegal, the companies will no longer be legitimate companies in terms of making nuclear weapons. So the money will start to dry up. Once the money starts to dry up, that will stop the flow of new weapons. But also, the other part of the process is that we actually need to do verification. So we need worldwide to do verification of where all these weapons are. And then after that, we'll start the um, slow and steady process of disarmament. The first stage of many, but we're incredibly excited about it. What sort of percentage vote do they have to have for it to get through? I think at the first committee, it's just a pass. There was some talk that they may need in security issues a two-thirds majority, but I don't think this applies. I think it's actually it's a majority of nations. And then once the treaty is through, to then to get it ratified, it needs 50 countries to ratify it. So that means 50 countries to bring it into law in their own country for it to then be implemented. And we're likely to have the USS Puppy Dog Australia in there trying to sabotage it again? I think puppy dog is a very kind way to describe it. I, think. <laughs> I, I did think of something else, but I thought, no, that's not nice. I think at the UN process, Australia's developed a reputation as what's called a weasel. We're the head of the weasel states because, unfortunately, even though surveys showed that 84% of Australians in 2014, the survey done by Nielsen, really strongly supported nuclear weapons disarmament, 
this government is actively undermining the process. And in fact, today, a large group of very eminent Australians representing hundreds of thousands of people, there's been a press release coming out from the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons, urging the government to support this ban. And in fact, we're MAPW will be putting out an open letter to Julie Bishop in the next day or two because we've got a number of very eminent health professionals who've signed on and, and lots of our members have signed on because the health implications of this are enormous and the government is not either listening to the population nor taking into account the terrible health consequences of nuclear weapons. And in the future to force countries like Israel to actually acknowledge that they do have nuclear weapons? Yes, well, I think people don't realise not just that we need to get the Israels and the North Koreas to give up their weapons, and I think China would put a lot more pressure on North Korea if, if these weapons did become illegal. But also, we're at a sort of turning point where if we don't ban them, a whole lot more countries are going to start to get them. Japan is starting to sniff around getting nuclear weapons. The United Arab Emirates has suddenly decided it needs nuclear power, which is the commonest way countries in the past have acquired nuclear weapons. And the United Arab Emirates has huge petrol and renewable resources, so for it to want the very expensive option of nuclear power is surprising. And, and there's lots of countries where if we don't actually act now, it's not a case of status quo, it's a case of a whole lot more countries becoming nuclear armed and the likelihood of a nuclear war being much increased. So we really have to seize this moment to try and get nuclear disarmament. But yes, Israel, North Korea, there's lots of countries where the verification will be very important and then the pressure to disarm and then the actual disarmament. And who's over there representing ICANN for Australia? Tilman Ruff's gone over, the illustrious Tilman Ruff. Tim Wright, our executive director. In addition, we've supported, in fact, MAPW, the Medical Association of Prevention of War, have supported, with the help of our very generous donors, sending over Abaca and Jane Madison, who's a, a Marshall Islander woman who survived the bombing tests in the 50s, and she's a very powerful advocate. And by having her over there as well would be very good because it reminds people of the terrible impacts of these weapons and will particularly help with the Pacific Island nation countries to, to feel that they have a representative speaking out on their behalf in the debate. Melbourne University has welcomed the arrival of the US military giant Lockheed Martin's new Stellar Lab, the Science, Technology, Engineering, Leadership and Research Laboratory to be located in the heart of the uni's engineering and science innovation precinct. The powers that be at Melbourne Uni might be happy, but happiness is not certainly not shown by peace activists and the student union, and they claiming that the university should not be involved in the development of weapons and research should only be conducted in the interest of a better and more peaceful society. And I would imagine that MAPW would concur. Oh, absolutely. Yes, we're appalled that Melbourne University has taken on Lockheed Martin, who are the world's largest weapons manufacturer. They've got about 8% of the world's market in 2014, and the vast majority of their work sort of is all about armaments. We strongly support the stance of the students. Melbourne University can do so much better, it raises huge amounts of money from its alumni, and I think a lot of their alumni would be appalled that they're associating with such a company. On behalf of Lockheed Martin, I wonder whether they're giving money in Australia because they wish to shore up the sales of their joint strike fighter planes, which are having such a very poor record of safety and suitability for the Australian needs. Dubious about why they're suddenly, Australia is their first, this is their first such research laboratory outside America. And I think that it is 
very, very disappointing that the university has decided to do this because making manufacturing weapons is not what universities should be about. And the not-so-honourable former Deputy Labor Prime Minister Kim Beasley has been warmly welcomed to the Lockheed Martin Australian Board. Oh, really? I didn't know that particular... I mean, this is, again, incredibly disappointing that they think that it's OK to, to work with these people. Although Australia, I have to say, having a minister, a very senior minister as the Minister for Defence Industries, you just have to substitute the word defence for the word weapons and you have a serious questions about why Australia has a Minister for Weapons Industries. Certainly the defence budget is... The whole Australian budget is gradually going... Trying, they're trying to reduce spending, but defence has been completely decoupled from this, this spending. And if you look at the graph, the foreign aid graph sort of staggers downwards to 0.21% of gross national product, whilst the defence budget is steadily climbing to become 2% of gross national product, and this is really very concerning because this will mean that a lot of other areas in Australia suffer. You know, health and education, if the money's pouring into defence, it's going to affect health and education spending. But not just that, it may well, given Australia is significantly ramping up its military spending, it may well develop into a regional arms race. Other countries around us may look at what Australia's been doing and become alarmed and start pouring their money into military spending. So it's uh, very concerning. Pine Gap, are Lockheed Martin involved there? Oh. That's I'm a very sure. good question. I would think so, but I don't know. I can take that as a question on notice. <laughs> Certainly, um, there are a lot of American contractors at Pine Gap. Um, about half the staff at Pine Gap are American contractors, and a lot of it is privatised. So I would think probably, but I can't say for sure. It's apparently a very successful rally up there over the last few weeks. Yes, there was a tremendous conference put on by IPAN, the Independent Peaceful Australia Network, which examined why Australia is so closely tied to the American military and the options we have to be more like, for example, New Zealand, where we have no bases or, in fact, really what IPAN would like was complete independence from any country so that we don't have sort of the military bases that we have already in Darwin where the troops are based and the intelligence bases around the country of which the biggest is Pine Gap. And Pine Gap is involved in so many things. I mean, not just collecting intelligence from mobile phones, but also directing drone strikes and a number of other intelligence-gathering activities. So we are, as Australians, sort of complicit in the drone strikes that are happening. And they're happening in countries we're not even at war with. We're happening in countries like Yemen, Pakistan, Somalia. And by killing these people with drones, these are effectively extrajudicial killings and Australia is complicit in that because we host the facility. We don't hear any calls for war crimes against Saudi Arabia who are just bombing the country of Yemen into the the dark ages using American bombs. Well, in the last financial year, America sold $33 billion worth of weapons into the Gulf states. So America is very, very heavily tied into this war as a business model. Whilst when these... I mean, recently, as your listeners would know, they bombed a, a funeral, killing more than 100 civilians. And certainly there have been many, many bombings on hospitals and health facilities. And each time they, they blame poor intelligence. But in fact, it's very clear that there's no independent inquiry happening. And I don't know, whilst the Americans said they were going to review their relationship with the Saudi Arabians once this strike happened, I would be very surprised if this is an independent 
independent view, given the huge financial incentives for America to keep providing weapons to, to the Gulf states. And being a health professional, you must be very concerned because it's one of the poorest, if not the poorest country in the whole region there. You bomb what might be a hospital, very primitive, I would imagine, compared to what we have here. What happens to the people, all the, the hundreds, thousands who are injured in these bombing raids who don't die initially but linger on dreadful lives? In a war zone, it's very difficult to get data on this, but if you remove the, not only remove the hospital but either kill or injure the health people, working, the nurses and the doctors working there, clearly there's going to be much greater death rates. And when they analysed Iraq... They found that the, the German international positions for the prevention of nuclear war are, are equivalent. The MAPW equivalent in Germany did a terrific study where they looked at the death rates in Iraq before the war and then looked at the death rates for the timing of the war, just the mortality rates of the whole population, and did a very detailed survey about this, sort of consulting um, many, many people and worked out that about a million people died. And a big part of that was the destruction of health facilities, the lack of availability of vaccinations, the lack of availability of clean water and sewage, so that cholera is a big issue. So that there's a whole generation of people growing up in Iraq that will not be vaccinated, that don't have access to good, clean living standards, that have and know in terms of health facilities, as well as the damage from war, the fact that we're cutting foreign aid Last year, the World Health Organization closed 184 clinics in 10 out of the 18 provinces in Iraq. So th these clinics have been cut down because they shut down not just because of the war, but because people are cutting their foreign aid budgets. And so these countries where they effectively lose their health facilities and their health carers then suffer further as, as countries are not helping them with their aid budgets either. So it's very important that there is independent investigation into these attacks because that's the only way that countries will actually stop and think about them before they keep going on with them. Finally, a farewell to another fighter against war and the, the lies that accompany it for over 40 years, and that's Professor Des Ball. Yes, Des was a force to be reckoned with in terms of knowledge and understanding about all the capacities of Pine Gap He'll be very much missed. Uh, Richard Tander, who also knows a lot about Pine Gap, has worked on it with, very closely with Des for many years. And um, if any of your listeners are interested, he made a very moving tribute to him on Late Night Live about a week ago on Radio National. So, yes, he'll be sorely missed. The funeral of a, a past president of MAPW was held recently, and it was at Torquay where he lived, and that's... Dr Bill Williams, but for people who weren't able to go to Torquay on that day, there is a there is a commemoration going to happen in the next month. Yes, if people would like to come and remember Bill and share their stories, because um, he was a tremendous, tremendous person in many ways and had packed so much into such a short life, there will be a memorial for Bill at the Bella Union, which is the upstairs section in the bar, at Trades Hall, which is on the corner of Ligon Street and um, Victoria Street in Carlton. And that's going to be held on the 12th of November from 1 o'clock till 4.30. And um, everybody's welcome because uh, we really want to give Bill a good send-off. He, he was a tremendous advocate for peace and enjoyed life to the full. 
and so we're we're really wanting to put things on for Bill so to remember him and celebrate his life. And you as the current president of MAPW, I believe they're keeping you very busy. <laughs> the radioactive waste in South Australia, the proposal to import radioactive waste is indeed keeping me busy at the moment with, with the citizens' jury this Saturday and the parliamentary upper house next week. And we also have our national conference in Sydney. If people would like to come to our national conference in Sydney, go to our website because we'd be very welcome. People are very welcome. It's in Glebe. Thanks very much, Margie. Oh, thanks a lot, Jan. We packed a lot in. Thank Indeed. you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. We certainly do. That's Dr Margie Beavis, the President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. And that date again for the memorial to Dr Bill Williams is the 12th of November at Bella Union Bar, Trades Hall, between 1 and 4.30 in the afternoon. And just a, a reminder of the play, 1916, the No Case for Conscription. Regular listeners would have heard me interviewing the director of the play a couple of weeks ago, Natasha Broadstock. Opening night is tonight and it runs for two weeks, Tuesday to Saturday with two matinees on Sunday. There are two ways to book. You can either ring the theatre on 9387 3376 or you can book through the internet www.metanoiatheatre.com I'll say that again www.metanoiatheatre.com tre.com and it should be good I'm going tonight it's the opening night tonight but it's as I said it's on for two weeks and it should be really good and that's all all part of the campaign that's been running all year and um, to commemorate all those people who fought against conscription back a hundred years ago here right around Australia and particularly here in Melbourne like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has a specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. On the program a couple of weeks ago, environmental activist and consultant Lee Tan spoke about the situation in Malaysia, where she'd recently visited, about the not only the environment, but also the political situation there. After Malaysia, she travelled to Mongolia. I was invited by the Asian European People's Forum. Actually, I've never heard of that forum before. But when I was involved in the Linus campaign, I wrote an article for a German civil society group. I think they call themselves the Asian Foundation. And they've been supporting a lot of grassroots 
mining campaigns, and they wanted to capture lessons learned from the Stop Liners campaign. They invited me to make a presentation to help other groups, particularly the Mongolian groups, who are facing increasing challenges from mining activities and also from corruption within their own country. What sort of mining are they looking for? Well, they've got a lot of minerals, including rare earth. Although we're talking about outer Mongolia, not not the inner Mongolia, which is part of China. Uh, this is Mongolian that has got a lot more Russian or former Soviet influence, and it is now an independent state. Very interesting. In some way, they're very open, free kind of democratic system, but it's gone down the neoliberal path very quickly, and it's affecting the nomadic herders a lot. There's been a lot of mining, actually gold mining, and they're not. Well managed because the system of governance is very fragmented in Mongolia, rather weak. Although you know there are good people in governments and all sorts of other things, but there the politics is quite complex as well. There's also this tussle between the neoliberals and the more socialist oriented people and the market economy versus you know culture and so on and so forth. So there's a whole lot of mixture of all these kind of issues. Happening there, there's a lot of oil and gas exploration as well. There's a lot of mineral exploration, dominated by the Chinese companies. Of course, you know they they're hungry for all kinds of raw materials everywhere, and the, uh, the Mongolians, particularly the nomadic herders, are also quite severely affected by climate change, the extreme weather condition, either hot. You know, prolonged drought in summertime, or、uh, particularly cold, longer period of winter. All of that affects their livestock. It's been described as the most sparsely populated country in the world. Absolutely, and, and you can see、yes. why. Yes, it's harsh. You know, I got a day where I was free to go, and I went to a, a national park.、It's、amazing country. If I get The chance and the money and whatever I would really like to travel there because it's so different from the rest of the world. There's so much of what is still natural and original there, and the culture is still quite strong in the in the rural area. And it's good to see that the Soviet Union didn't have a lot of very nasty, lasting impact. Although the, you can see some old cars. Built, you know, to pollute and use coal, and there's actually a lot of coal mining there.、Uh, a lot of old coal power plant that looks really hideous, particularly in the capital city Ulaanbaatar, which is a valley, and it just traps all the particulates and the haze in that city. But outside of there, it's amazing. And those horrible blocks of flats, <laughs> yes, steel grey, aren't <laughs> Absolutely. they? Absolutely, yeah. There's a lot of remnants of the old Soviet system: opera houses, pink kind of palace, palatia buildings. It's fascinating. I mean, I thoroughly enjoy my whole my, my one week there. Although we were in a meeting most of the time, and the Mongolian people are really amazing. Talk about how the people, the the herders, and the how they live now. Amazingly, most of them still lives in their gur. With you know very limited sanitation, with、uh, very limited access to water as well. But they used to that kind of lifestyle. Even in the capital city Ulaanbaatar, you can actually see gur popping out in the suburbs. 
Apparently, it's a lot cheaper to construct that than a brick building, and it's mobile. And what do they make them out of these days? Mainly still very much the traditional way of, uh, I don't think they're using leather, but I think they're using more manufactured fabrics. They're still very traditional in, in their way of life in many ways. Ulaanbaatar is a very small city as compared to many other Asian cities. It has got its own character, which is quite interesting. Tourism is really, of course, you know, a fairly major income-generating activity. Just hope that doesn't destroy anything in the process. Well, I don't suppose you could get more of a contrast between Mongolia and Hong Kong. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, you know, Hong Kong was incredibly hot. I've never felt a place so hot ever because it's such a big, huge, massive concrete jungle. And yeah, the summer, the humidity is quite unbearable, actually. But when I was there, I was staying with a niece who's involved in a in an environmental consultancy that does a lot of work with um, corporations, looking at so-called corporate social responsibility. One of the projects that my niece was involved in was really interesting. They call it natural farming. But it's based on the Korean model where they use probiotic to manage waste from the farm. And that in turn generate fertilizer in a natural way, utilizing what's available from the farm, from the soil, from the plants, from the animals. And that system seems to work quite well for a medium to high density kind of uh, farming system. And uh, there's been experimental farms that are doing quite well in China, and they're trying to promote that, you know, to encourage more sustainable and more ecologically friendly farming system. It's quite encouraging to know that, even though I was in Hong Kong when I heard of all this and seen all this, yes. How much area is under farming in, in Hong Kong? In Hong Kong. In the new territory, there's still a fair few farming areas. Um, there's been a lot of abandoned lands that's been used by community groups to set up gardens. It's very popular there, even amongst the middle class and the more aware people. I don't know how much in terms of land mass, but in terms of the new territory, there's still a significant amount of land used for food growing because there's a huge population to feed. And, you know, their system of farming is very highly intensive, of course. Do they still reclaim land from the sea? It hasn't been for a while. Yes, the developers are always looking for places to reclaim. But they are increasingly facing opposition from people in Hong Kong who are now more aware of the importance of keeping green spaces and so on and so forth. So they do not always get things their way. Did you get any sense while you were there of the the struggles between the people of Hong Kong and their big neighbour China? Yes, there's often a bit of communal dispute and, you know, communalism, I guess. Although I think there's been more effort to build bridges and links and not looking at it from that kind of territorial perspective, there's also some interaction. Although... It's been difficult. Even in Mongolia, we met two Chinese-based so-called NGOs. One of them I've met before to a previous meeting in Asia. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, they very much state-sponsored from the way they presented, 
you know, their position and being really defensive of China and not willing to accept uh, mistakes and also injustice and so on and so forth that other people have raised. Uh, one of the issues that featured quite significantly at the Mongolian meeting was the territorial disputes, particularly the marine territorial dispute. There seems to be a major dispute between China and Philippines, of course, China and Japan, and even, you know, the involvement of the U.S. military and so on and so forth. There's quite a fair bit of tension there. And I just threw in a rock and say, oh, you guys are disputing over land, land and sea territory. Are you looking at climate change impact? What are you trying to fight for when the ocean is turning acidic and so on and so forth? I mean, you should be looking at those issues as well, not just looking at territorial boundaries. <laughs> that was quite good, actually. It stopped them from arguing for a while. <laughs> and what's happening in Singapore? Are they worried about climate change there? Um, well, they ought to be in terms of they have reclaimed land. I mean, you did ask about reclaimed lands. They are very vulnerable because what are they going to do? I mean, they can't build walls to stop the, the sea from encroaching. Yeah, it is again, you know, nature kind of reclaiming what is rightfully nature, natural. And they're going to have to face a lot of problems trying to keep the sea from surging in. And it's all created by, by us through our very unsustainable lifestyle. And I, I mean, I know not even, uh, you know, Hong Kong or Singapore, even people in my hometown, there's still developer come talking up grand plan, you know, to go out to the sea, destroy coral reef, whatever, to try and put more high rise building to make money and so on and so forth. And in, in Penang Island as well. Yeah, there's been a very controversial plan to try and reclaim land to I can't remember what it is, but but there's been a fair bit of opposition as people become more aware. Just finally, Lee, the case going to the International Court about the oil and gas between Australia and East Timor. Yes. Australia's position has not changed, sadly, and Timorese is pressing ahead with this one. Yeah, it's hard to know what the outcome would be if Australia persisted in you know, claiming kind of sea boundary that <laughs> that's kind of uh, way against international convention. We acted in a very double standard manner when it comes to the Timor Gap oil and gas resources. Actually, it is very shameful to be an Australian, you know, when it comes to this issue. Of course, fully aware that so many Australians do not agree with it anyways, more the government and probably the oil companies' agenda rather than the public's agenda. Of course, Timor would not let it go, although the prices of oil and gas uh, products has dropped significantly, which is a good thing from climate change point of view, I guess. Although, you know, as long as it, it doesn't mean that people will use more of it because it's cheaper and more affordable. You know, I always like to think that it's dropping, not just because of supply, but rather the demand is stabilized because people are moving away from oil and gas. I mean, that definitely has contributed to the drop in prices. For Timor, it is a, an issue. I mean, they've been depending on this oil and gas revenue, which, you know, from an environmental angle, it's got a lot of uh, issues around it because of the carbon emission and all that sort of stuff, pollution. 
But at the same time, the government is not quick enough in diversifying its own income and revenues. Although, you know, working with NGOs in Timor, we've always made proposal to the government to look at other options. But um, many people in power, although it's not the major, not not everyone, they are used to the mainstream development model. They use the market economy. They can't see beyond that, and it's a challenge. Certainly is. Thanks to Lee Tan, environmental activist and consultant. And now our monthly segment, looking at anti-GM genetically modified organisms. With Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. Bob, the government of South Australia strongly advocates a GM-free state, and it would appear that not only the citizens of South Australia are in favour, but also GM-free food and beverages are in demand overseas, leading to increased GM-free exports. And I believe they have the Pope on their side. <laughs> Yes, yes. South Australia is going gangbusters, and uh, in fact, we just have news in the last uh, couple of days that Tasmania is uh, promoting its GM-free food and beverages as well. So both states are going very well on that front. A recent report in South Australia found that the export potential for GM-free is very substantial, and they're now offering grants of up to fifteen hundred dollars. To the food industry, in order to develop those markets, both GM-free and organic, which is very good. So we're encouraging all of our contacts in South Australia to go for it and to、uh, take the government's money. Make sure not only that they can do exports, but also, of course, that Australians are fed the excellent GM-free and organic foods from South Australia. What sort of foods do they mainly grow for consumption, home consumption, and export in South Australia? Well, they have a very substantial organic and biodynamic dairy industry,、uh, and that is already achieving very good both local and export markets. A lot of the dairy farmers in South Australia have not been hit with the same reverses as they have elsewhere, as a result of having that very good premium niche market for their excellent products.、I、won't name names, but I can say that their yogurts, in particular, are excellent. Now, what's the Pope? Putting his、um, bit in for. Well, the Pope has continued, of course, to be very, very strong on environmental and social justice issues from his own personal background. He, in his、uh, World Food Day comments to the Food and Agriculture Organisation, made a very strong attack. I think we can say it's an attack on genetically manipulated plants and animals, and particularly the concentration of ownership and control, which is now taking place. In the biotechnology industry, if the Monsanto and Bayer mergers go through,、uh, we're going to end up with just three players basically owning most of the world's commercial seed and controlling the world's agrochemicals. And the Pope, along with ourselves and many other people people around the world,、uh, see that not in the interests of food security, and that、uh, we need a new path. Rural communities. Around the world, 500 million family farmers. The small farmers are the ones who are, are really providing the core of the good, fresh fruits and vegetables that keep people healthy and well-fed. While there are some problems, we need to be investing our research and development resources in ensuring that that ecologically sustainable, 
and environmentally friendly system of agroecology that's now being developed is developed further and uh, is spread around the world because our industrial style of broadacre agriculture here in Australia, which is dependent on very high and expensive inputs of agrochemicals, farm machinery, fertilisers and so on, is unsustainable. It impacts our environment. It is going to be not viable as those inputs run out and as the global climate changes. We need a new model. The Pope is one of the um, key people out there leading public opinion, advocating for a much more ecological approach to feeding the world's people. And of course the importance of seed saving, which has been going on for thousands of years, I'd imagine. Well, yes, the patenting of the genes of seeds over the last uh, 50 odd years along with the agrochemicals has meant that farmers have had to go back every year to buy their hybrid or genetically manipulated seeds and as a result they're really in thrall and in constant hock to those huge industries which as I said are now going to be much more concentrated in the hands of three mega corporations that are going to have control. On the other hand we need to be nurturing and helping to improve their strategies those uh, family farmers who are the core of producing the fresh fruits, vegetables and grains for the world's people into the future. And I think that our um, research and development efforts should be uh, focused on making that transition out of the industrial model and into the agroecology model for the feeding of the world's people in the future. It can be sustainable. It's been uh, well scoped out by... Um, Food and Agriculture Organisation, the World Health Organisation has done a lot of work on this as well. There are many, many non-government organisations, of course, advocating in that direction as well and saving seed, as you say, so that farmers can replant and can use that wonderful array of open pollinated varieties and heritage seeds that have been developed over the last five or 7,000 years by our forebears in the public domain, not patented, not owned by corporations and freely available to us all. Of course, there's also a move back to, um, now that we mostly live in cities, a move back to focusing on how can cities be self-sustaining as well. So there's a, a conference uh, coming up at Burnley uh, next month which will look at the prospects for urban agriculture in uh, Melbourne as well. About time too, I think. Yes, well, the backyard garden from our um, parents' and grandparents' days has gone a little bit out of fashion. People are a bit too busy to do it, but I think we need to look back to uh, supplying a substantial amount of uh, the city's food since um, probably 80 or 90% of us live in cities to getting that uh, food in the city where we live. One of the reasons that the promoters of GM food say, oh, well, we'll be able to feed the world, you can't feed the world on the present situation, it doesn't take into account the amount of food that's wasted. Yes, 30% of all food produced in the world is wasted one way or another, uh, whether it's down the back of people's fridges going rotten and then being thrown out at the end of the month or in some cases being inadequately stored where um, some other countries have inadequate production and storage uh, infrastructure. We can help there too, I think, by um, resourcing and researching uh, new ways to make sure that food, when it's produced, gets to the people who need it. It's really scandalous that, as Food Bank is saying, 
some 2 million Australians are now food insecure and will rely at some point during the year on charity to feed their, themselves and their children. This is not a good situation for a wealthy community like Australia and it's totally unnecessary. There are, of course, um, organisations now recycling food, surplus to requirements out of supermarkets and so on. And it's notable that this is a trend happening around the world. France, for instance, re recently made it illegal for their supermarkets to throw out food that they couldn't sell. And that has to be um, taken and made accessible for those people who uh, can't afford to feed themselves otherwise. Of course, that goes to the systemic problem of social justice and the fair and equitable distribution of resources in our society. So it's not only food that we should be concerned about, but also housing. We've now got every night in Australia in excess of 100,000 people, including a lot of children, homeless. That's totally unacceptable. People who can't clothe themselves, be educated or heal themselves adequately as well. Those fundamental needs of people should be met by a community as wealthy as Australia and other countries around the world, but they aren't. And this goes to the, um, to the question of a fair distribution of resources away from the 1% who are getting ever fatter and richer and uh, having them more equally distributed to uh, the community as a whole. That's the role of government, but our governments here, unfortunately, are not doing a very good job of it at the moment. And the edict from the large supermarket chains that they wouldn't accept food from farms unless it was absolutely perfect and that sort of encouraged people to also not accept things that might look a little bit different. Is that changing at all? I think that it is. As a, as a shopper for organic, I can say that um, I'm always looking out for um, good value in the organic store and uh, things like uh, juicing carrots, that are a bit um, wobbly, still wonderful quality and uh, perfect, really, and except for their looks. And the same with things like the juicing apples, which um, I like to stew uh, with some raisins and fruit juice for a wonderful dessert. Yes, there are ways of shopping affordably, organically, and supporting those growers who, um, of course, part of the crop is always not as attractive as... Uh, supermarkets would like but it, it certainly shouldn't be dumped and it should be uh, available out there in the shops and in the markets where um, people can buy it sometimes uh, get a bargain uh, that's certainly the way that that uh, my household here shops um, we shop uh, for the good food and don't just rely on our eyes to to um, to tell us uh, what's appropriate just to go back to the pope for a moment you wrote that his it's his strongest attack yet on gm plants and animals what are the animals? Well, I think that's um, a concern for the way that animals are treated and uh, reared as well. With the new gene technologies coming along, so-called CRISPR and ZFN and other technologies, which we're having an argument with our regulator about at the moment because uh, the regulator is inclined not to assess or license them as genetically manipulated, these new technologies look as if they're going to be able to genetically manipulate any living organism. So there's work going on in vir virtually every living thing that you can imagine, and it does include animals, and it includes animals in a way that is turning them just into another product, into another commodity, which unfortunately is what 
industrial farming does as well. And I think uh, that the animal rights and welfare movement, which is being very effective in the area of animal production on farms, their treatment in abattoirs and uh, going to market as live exports overseas, these are things that uh, our community does need to take seriously and that the Pope is also speaking out on. Should we see other sentient creatures simply as um, fodder for our industries? I don't think so. And uh, even in the rural media and things like Landline, the um, ABC TV rural show, the treatment of animals is now being very, very much talked about and I think it's appropriate that uh, we care about the other living things in the world and, and the Pope clearly does take that very seriously as well and speaks up on behalf of sentient beings. This is um, a great thing for a moral leader to do and I think the Dalai Lama would uh, take a similar similar view that uh, the major religions of the world do have a respect for nature that... Um, leads them to make statements on behalf of uh, other living creatures. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. My name is Jan Bartlett and I'm speaking with the Director of Gene Ethics Network, Bob Phelps. Well, I'm waiting for the day when they come out and say we'll stop breeding these animals and stop eating them altogether. Well, yes, uh, for those of us who are vegetarians and vegans already, uh, we can certainly hope for that, and the trend is in that direction. I note, for instance, that the amount of beef being eaten in Australia has gone down quite dramatically over the last several years. And it's interesting, too, when the younger generations, some children quite young, realise where their meat is coming from and decide that that's not something that they want to visit on uh, on living th- other living things. So I think there is a a growing consciousness. Of course, from an, an environmental point of view, industrial agriculture is a disaster as well because of its um, use of uh, those scarce resources and being few, um, oil dependent, as I mentioned before, that uh, we just need to do things differently. We can do things differently. And uh, it's better for our health to not eat meat at all. But if we do need to eat it or if we want to eat it, then we need to do it very moderately. We just need to watch things like the obesity epidemic around the world in um, certain communities that is uh, at least in substantial part generated by um, the um, overconsumption of meat products. At the beginning we were congratulating the government of South Australia for its advocacy of non-GM but apparently Western Australia, they can't let go can they? Could it be a backfire in the upcoming elections, the way they're performing on this? Well, I think so. The Barnett government, um, at the urging of a very small group of uh, West Australian farmers who organise themselves as the Pastoralists and Graziers Association, are very strongly connected to the Liberal government. And just last week, they repealed the GM Crops Free Areas Act, which has been in place since 2003. And the provisions of the Act are that... uh, If a new genetically manipulated uh, crops, such as cotton and canola, which are already grown there, uh, are going to be released, then the state government has the power to uh, examine the marketing implications of the approval given by the federal regulators before 
those new GM crops come into the state. Well, the Barnett government, which has been having its own internal ructions with challenges to Premier Barnett um, just in the last couple of weeks, uh, will go to the polls next March. The Labor government, uh, the Labor opposition, should I say, the Labor opposition and the Greens have made it very clear that after the election, if they're um, able to form a government, that uh, they certainly will be examining ways to bring Western Australia back to the point where it's GM-free. They've uh, got very good policies on um, genetic manipulation. They're very mindful that the vast majority of West Australian farmers have never grown genetically manipulated crops, remain GM-free, and are in fact reaping premiums of up to $70 a tonne for their GM-free canola production. And that's been a boon for farmers over there and should not be ignored. And so it's a, it's a policy reverse that the government's made at the behest of a very small rump of farmers. And uh, the vast majority, I think, will take this seriously as an election issue and uh, may likely vote accordingly next March. Of course, there are a lot of other issues at stake in Western Australia as well, particularly unemployment, urban infrastructure has been very hot there lately, so other things will determine the outcome of the election, but uh, we're pretty confident that uh, when and if there is a Labor government over there, that uh, the GM policy will be reversed, and it will be possible for West Australia to again become GM-free and to reap the benefits of the uh, premium markets, both local and into Europe especially, where, as I said, the seven, up to $70 per tonne premium is available. It's running constantly at 40 at the moment, but it has fluctuated up to 70 in the past. Just for a moment on the debate as to whether, like I say, Monsanto's Roundup herbicide causes cancer, Australia's chemical regulator appears to believe it doesn't. Why do you believe there are so many documents published worldwide which argue for and against the proposition? Well, it's the most use, used uh, herbicide in the world. It's, of course, used by almost everybody who wants to spray chemicals, uh, whether it's a local council with kids in thongs and shorts uh, spraying it around our streets and in our parks, or farmers using it on their farms as a broadacre weed killer. And it has been around for a long time, but the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is part of the World Health Organization, reclassified the active ingredient of Roundup, that's the chemical glyphosate, as a probable human carcinogen. Since then, of course, the industry has gone absolutely ballistic. There's been a huge international debate about the evidence, both for and against. And at this point, the... Uh, Australian Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority has decided that uh, really glyphosate's provided, of course, that you use it according to label instructions and you wear protective gear should pose no threats, making claims that it's um, biodegradable in the environment and so on, which of course has been challenged as well. So at the moment, our Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority is saying we've looked at glyphosate again. We don't agree with the views of the international agencies on this and we're just simply going to um, accept comments by the end of December and people are welcome to give us a comment. But at the moment, that organisation, that um, regulator's thinking is that glyphosate is OK. They're not going to do any more work on it. And interestingly, in the USA, they're... Um, 
Environment Protection Authority and uh, chemical regulators have just decided also that they're going to delay any review. And I think the reason that these um, regulators are hanging about at the moment is, of course, with the, the merger of Bayer and Monsanto now agreed and probably going to be negotiated by the end of next year. I think they're just taking a watch-and-see attitude because, uh, of course, Monsanto has been the owner and major producer of glyphosate uh, in the world for the last 30 years. It's now going to be taken over, and so the marketing and political scene is dramatically changing in that area, and the regulators don't want to be caught up in that as well. It leaves the public vulnerable, of course. If you do insist on spraying glyphosate as Roundup to kill weeds or on your crops, then be darn careful because uh, I think the evidence is there that uh, not only is it carcinogenic, that uh, it is toxic and it needs to be treated very, very carefully indeed. And in the worst-case scenario, there's evidence out of South America where it's been used so extensively on genetically manipulated cotton, soybean and corn that uh, it may also be or have an impact on uh, fetuses in utero as well. So that's to say that it's um, teratogenic. So are you saying it's in the atmosphere or is it, it's been taken up by the plants? Well, it remains in soil. It's claimed, of course, that it's um, uh, inactive because it's bound to soil. But uh, when it's being sprayed, of course, inhalation or contact with the skin are the ways that one might uh, be actually exposed to it. So the users of Roundup are the people most at risk. Small residues have been found in food. What their actual impact is has been not determined by regulators, so it's still debated as well. But I know that um, some preliminary research done in Europe and in the USA shows that there are small amounts of uh, glyphosate residue in food. Of course, along with uh, the residues of a whole raft of other chemicals because uh, that's how it is uh, in conventional agriculture. For instance, um, a carrot can have up to 13 different chemicals sprayed on it during its production. The residues of some of those chemicals are going to remain in a conventional product. Of course, our regulators have uh, maximum residue limits and levels of allowable residues. So when, when they do their surveys annually of, of our food supply, they generally come back saying, yes, we found residues, but they were all below the acceptable le levels of, um, of presence in food. So, um, Are you happy with those acceptable levels? Well, of course not, no. They're um, derived from what's suitable for the control of uh, weeds or insect pests or um, the diseases of plants in agriculture. So prime motivation for the chemical companies to, is to sell their chemical and for farmers to um, control whatever thing it is in their fields that, they, um, that challenges them to not maximise their productivity. We should be taking a different view about the use of those chemicals that primarily this is a public health issue and not that it's a production issue on farms. And I think that thinking has to be turned around it's something that we constantly advocate and our um, colleagues in Friends of the Earth and other organisations are constantly, the National Toxics Network, are constantly saying the same thing to regulators as well. But it means 
a huge change of mindset. Uh, it's a system developed by the agrochemical industry, which is, of course, enormously powerful and cashed up. The public, the community, needs to, in a united way, raise its voice much more often and uh, consistently to try to say public health first, food production on farms second, and uh, environmental protection, public health, as the primary goals of uh, minimising the amounts of chemicals used and their residues in the food supply, because it is a public health issue. Monsanto has many names, Bob, and including Biotech Bully, the most hated corporation in the world, and the company representatives refused to appear at the Monsanto Tribunal, where it could have defended its history and intent, against charges that is guilty of crimes against humanity and ecocide. And that was held where? That was in The Hague, and it was, um, was organised by civil society groups uh, at The Hague the week before last. And the Monsanto Tribunal was a beginning for people internationally around the world to say that the chemical industry generally, and Monsanto in particular, cannot continue to produce its products without regard for public health and the environment. And so witnesses came from every continent and many countries, 30 witnesses, to give evidence before five judges, not in, an, in a formal court, but nonetheless in a court constituted in a way that can produce a good result, an opinion about where to from here on the chemicals that are harming people's health, their environments and promoting, for instance, the deforestation of um, the Amazon around the world by um, continuing to make those chemicals available that facilitate these negative impacts on humans and our fragile natural environments as well. Monsanto really is the symbol for this industry. We need to be getting on a new path onto the agroecological path that's not based on synthetic chemicals an industry that has a short history, really. Um, Monsanto's just over 100 years old. It um, started its history by um, being involved, as Bayer was, in the production of chemicals and munitions in the First World War and in the Second World War too. In the case of Bayer, which is now going to take over Monsanto, Bayer, of course, was involved in the production of gas for the gas chambers, then, of course, after the Second World War, they had all this infrastructure for making chemicals and decided, as in the case of the peaceful nuclear atom to justify nuclear weapons and nuclear power, they saw an opportunity to justify their existence and the continuation of their industry as a chemical industry for fighting so-called pests, weeds and uh, insects in the environment in global agriculture and so we saw of course um, a huge argument about uh, the fact that this would impact the environment. The organic industry was created because of course agriculture had been largely organic until then and the huge agrochemical industries being created that now uh, have dominated the global production of food until now. We now need to reverse that trend to clean up our act find new ways of producing food and fibre for the world. Monsanto Tribunal really is the next step of saying, OK, we've had it with the chemical industry, we've had it with Monsanto, where to next? 
and uh, I think in that sense it will have been a great success and we're looking forward uh, very much to the judges uh, bringing down their verdict uh, sometime next month. Listening to Bob makes you more appreciative of organic food all the more. That's Bob Phelps, who's the director of Gene Ethics Network. I don't know whether there's much ethics in GM, but um, there you go. Hoy there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Center in St Kilder. Did you ever hear the crow in the sky going, ah, ah, ah? That stands for reuse, reuse, recycle. And you heard it first on 3CR. Earlier this month, the outcome of the ICSID, the International Centre for Settlement of Investment Disputes, formulated by the World Bank, case by Pacific Rim slash Oceania Gold versus El Salvador, was announced. The company was seeking 310 million US dollars in damages for the alleged losses of potential profits as the result of not being granted a mining concession for its gold project. Instead, El Salvador will receive $8 million of the $12 million spent to defend its case, but there are concerns that this money might not be forthcoming. And despite the ruling, El Salvador's fight to protect water, the environment and human rights is far from over as corporate globalisation and free trade create the conditions for corporations to do business with impunity across the globe. On the last Friday of the month, for over three years, there's been a demonstration at 357 Collins Street, Melbourne, to protest against the actions by Oceania Gold, and that's their headquarters here in Melbourne. And one of the organisers of the rally is Kevin Bracken from the MUA. I spoke with Kevin at the weekend and pointed out that the decision was a long time coming, but it wasn't the first one. No, this is the third decision that's been handed down in this case. The first one was um, Pacific Rim Oceana Gold tried to use the Central American Free Trade Agreement to sue El Salvador, and ICSID International Centre for Settlement of International Disputes said that no, it couldn't be used, but because it referenced the um, investment law in El Salvador and the ICSID convention, which El Salvador had signed in December 2007, that it could be heard. Then El Salvador tried to put another ruling and say that they hadn't been through the proper process to apply for a permit, and that was uh, dismissed and they said they could hear it. And this decision, which was handed down last Friday, said that um, the company, Pacific Rim Oceana Gold, was unsuccessful and had to pay $8 million compensation to El Salvador. So while it looks good on paper, the company that ran this case in Ixid was Pacific Rim Cayman Island LLC, which was registered in the Cayman Islands. But there was no investment law with Canada, which Oceana Golden Pacific Rim is registered in. But there is in the USA. They moved their Cayman Island operation to Nevada. And because it was in the USA, they have got an agreement with an investment agreement with um, El Salvador, and that's how they could use it. So the funny thing is that since they've, the announcement's been made, Oceana Gold has made an announcement saying that um, it's only a, a subsidiary company, 
and more likely it's got no assets and probably won't be able to pay up the $8 million. So it just goes to show you how much chicanery goes on with these corporations. A country can't go anywhere. You know, whether a government gets elected or another government comes in, it doesn't matter, the country's still there. And that get, cost can go under the company. But the corporations, it's called forum shopping, and they'll just use these ICSIDs to register anywhere, like Philip Morris did when they, with the Australian government and registered in Hong Kong. They forum shopping allows corporations to sue governments. They lost on a technicality, wasn't it? Yeah. They ruled that what happened is that they hadn't been through a proper environmental effects statement. You mean this is this has been going on for years and years? Seven years. And no one picked that up? That's right. So it should have been dismissed in the first place. The other thing was that it didn't actually own, it didn't hold the title to a lot of the lands where they wanted the uh, mine. So it should have been dismissed. Instead, it's cost El Salvador $13 million and a lot of worry. And not only that, it has had a um, freezing effect on not only El Salvador but other uh, Central American countries because I went over to El Salvador in um, May 2013. In April 2013, six people had been shot in the Cerro Blanco mine in Guatemala, which is just over the border, and that watershed runs into El Salvador. But since then, Guatemala hasn't, had, hasn't put any implementing legislation in to try and contain the mine, which I don't like, in the Cerro Blanco, for the fear of being sued, the same as El Salvador has been. So it's not only that a country has a worry of it, but it has a freezing effect on bringing in legislation because they feel they're going to be sued through ICSID. Let's go back to the beginning of this mine and Oceania Gold or Pacific Rim. When did it begin? Um, I believe it was about 2004. They took an exploration licence out in, in El Salvador. One of the poorest countries in Central America, if not the poorest. One of the poorest countries and also one of the most densely populated. So it's got about 360 people per square kilometre and also one of the most water-starved. It's the second most water-starved country in the Americas. Only 2% of the water is drinkable now. And part of the reason for that is is previous of, because of previous mining operations in the country and also because it's a volcanic area, is that those rocks are sulfuric rocks and when they dig them out and expose them to water, they become acidic and wash into the, into the waterways. And this is a population that went through a, a dreadful civil war. For sure. It's had a very violent history, um, El Salvador, and especially it probably culminated in the, the civil war that went on through the 80s, which was terrible. If you speak to any of the people over there, and I spoke to quite a few, and they've all had family members killed and horrific acts of torture and barbarity over there, in large part put out by people trained in the USA in the School of the Americas these death squads that used to go around. And I think it wasn't until there was um, six Jesuit priests killed in the University of Central America and nuns raped and murdered too that actually the USA started doing something about it. But it's had a terrible history and unfortunately, like a lot of uh, Central and South America, through the US using it as they have under the Monroe Doctrine and says that Central America and South America is only there to be used for the resources that benefit the USA. So it's an inhuman policy that's been imposed upon Latin America. Talk about the mine. Did it actually start operation? No, they were only they never got a permit for a mine because they never went through the proper process for it. They put an exploration permit. They didn't do a proper environmental effects statement and they didn't actually own all the freehold on the on the area around the mine. And instead of going about their application, amending their application, what they tried to do was splash the money around and try and have the laws changed in El Salvador. 
and it was a right wing party who was in power at the time to arena and um, looks like they might be taking power after the next election. To their credit, they did put the put the uh, ban on any more on issuing any more metalliferous mining permits in El Salvador. Well, when did the damage, or how did the damage get done? It's been through previous mining operations. There was a mine that operated from the eighteen nineties here until about nineteen eighty four. It took out about fifty tons of gold, so it's an enormous amount of wealth. And when you go to Ballarat and you know in Victoria, we've still got public buildings and the you know the infrastructure that was built through the benefit of that, of that mine that come from here. But if you go to El Salvador, there's not so much as a bitumen road there. There's no none of the wealth that's been ripped out of the country. And it's all that's left them is with the poison water supply and poverty. Talk about the people that you met when you went there in 2013 and their experiences of living in an ecological disaster. Well, we were the guests of ADES, the Association for the Development of El Salvador, which is a grassroots organisation. And in large part, the success of this came about through you know grassroots actions from ADES because they, they had another environmental effects statement done a proper one which found the flaws in in the um, one issued by Pacific Rim Oceana Gold and that's primarily you know, what won the case for El Salvador so anyway we were the guests of it there you know we stayed at, at their one of their places in uh, Cabanos which is a state of um, El Salvador but they, they're all about real development for El Salvador things that benefit the people you know, to educate the people you know to to give them um, benefits they have community training programs but they did tell us some of the history of um, El Salvador, and there was one one city through the Civil War, where the um, the military came in. They put the um, men in one room, sorry, in one building. They put the women in another building, and the children in another building, and they killed everyone in the whole town. And people who who um, actually fled, they couldn't find them when they were in the jungle. But when they were crossing the Limpo River, they had machine gun posts set up where they were crossing, and they'd mow them down while they were escaping. So. It's a terrible history, and it um, makes you feel like you want to, um, you know, help these people for all they've been through, and they don't deserve it. They're great people. What about the murders in recent times? So yeah, I mean, in two thousand and eight, they started. People started receiving death threats. So these are people who are actively opposing the mine. Yeah, mind. people who were from the mostly from the Cabanos Environmental Centre, and the first one was a school teacher, uh, Marcelo Rivero. And he was murdered. He went missing, and he was found. He found his body two weeks later, down the bottom of a mine shaft. And he had signs of torture, which was used for the um, by the death squads. Ripped his fingernails out, stabbed him in his testicles, and had a gag cut into his face. It was done that tight. Later on, Racinos Vero, he was shot eight times in the back. He actually lived. And then later on that year, in December, two thousand and nine. Four people with machine guns, M16s, opened fire on him and killed him and the woman who was sitting next to him in a truck. And then on Boxing Day, the 26th of December, Dora Soto, who was a um, the mother of one, who was a, in charge of the Cabanas Environmental Association, she was shot while she was returning from washing her clothes. So she was eight months pregnant at the time, a mother of six. The bullet also went through her two-year-old son, who she was nursing at the time. In 2006, a um, student was kidnapped. They found his body two weeks later in a mass grave. One of the claims that they want now too is that there's never ever been an investigation into the into the intellectual authors of those murders. But coincidentally, the bloke who was a vice president of, of uh, Pacific Rim, he'd been um, found dismembering a mutual employee, has cut him up and putting cutting his body up and putting him into a suitcase. 
he got 10 years jail. But after 12 months, he was released, and he, he was the um, son of, of the external affairs minister for El Salvador, a previous external affairs minister for El Salvador. There was such a public outright, they had to lock him up again, but he's never been questioned over any of those deaths that happened in Cabanos, and that's one of the claims they want those investigated. And what's happened to the area now that the mine's not going to happen? Are they fearful that there's going to be another one coming? Yeah, well, there's also been a, um, a body that's set up from Pacific Rim, and it's like they says, oh, we, you know, we're all about helping women and we want to train people and things like that. And they've spent about $10,000 over the last probably, I don't know, six or seven years. But it's all just doing is trying to give the company a, a um, thing and say, look at the things we've been doing. I mean, it's nowhere near the money that's cost El Salvador, you know, the government of El Salvador, which they could have used you know, for really uh, good programs to help the, the people out there. So, yeah, that they are, but they're apprehensive. I mean, El Salvador's still in a very, very bad economic position. And two weeks ago, the legislation, the implementing legislation for the budget hadn't been voted through from a, a arena. It allows these companies to come in and, and um, say, you know, we need development here, you know, and mining will be good. It's not good for the country, and the people don't want it, and they should respect the people's wishes there. The figure of $13 has been put forward to the cost of them fighting Oceana Gold. What's been the connections and the contributions from human rights and environmental groups outside the country to assist? I don't know that there's been any any assistance. No pro bono help? I don't believe so, no. Um, so it's been run by the government of El Salvador. and I think it's Luis Parada was the um, main attorney who's been running the case for El Salvador. But, yeah, no, it's cost the government $30 million. There is there's one donation that's been made for it, and that was from the um, SAC CUB workers, because I've been down there talking to them, and they, they came into the protest, which we've had, and, and full credit, I'd like to say this too, is that thank you to you, Jan, and a lot of people from Melbourne who've been going to the protest the last, last Friday of every month at the front of Oceana Gold's offices, because it's been greatly appreciated by the people over there, and it just goes to show you, you know, you might think your efforts aren't, significant but every little bit helps you know and one of the um, judges on this case said that part of why they they felt there was such a public pressure you know looking at people looking at this usually these things are held behind closed doors no one gets into it but because there has been public outcry over it not only here but in Toronto in um, El Salvador and in Washington too that they felt pressured and it's probably had a a good effect on it too so while we're here, Jan, I'd like to say thanks to all the people who did come in, especially like our MUA retired groups. They've been the mainstay of it. Why did the MUA get involved? Well, we've had solidarity actions with um, El Salvador before. In the early 2000s, we tried with the um, Teamsters to try and do some work to get some um, decent conditions for the people in the port for San Salvador at the Maersk uh, terminal there. And... We jointly funded a, a delegate to go over, an organiser to go over from um, Washington, from the Teamsters, and he was murdered about a week after he'd been there. So we'd had an outcome, a few um, pro, a few um, campaigns out of that. One was a Maersk campaign, which you know ended up going to the director of Maersk, and he said, you know, he, he supports union agreements and things like that. But mind you, it hasn't had any effect on the terminal in Maersk either, and it's a it's a dangerous company. I think it's probably the murder capital of um, Central America. So. Unfortunately, life's cheap over there, you know. But it's this influence, you know, it's been causing this disharmony in the country, you know. And we've got to get rid of that. And we've got those people have got to get together and start doing development that really helps them. 
in what they're doing. I was asked by Paddy to go over there in, in um, May 2013. I was part of an international fact-finding mission, and they asked for solidarity from outside, and we, we've given them that solidarity since like 2013. We've had So it's three years we've kept up the protest out there, officers there. And also members of the Catholic Church have been... Greatly assisting you too, and Bishop Hilton Deacon went? Yep, Bishop Hilton Deacon, he's been over to El Salvador about three times too, but to his credit, you know, he could have a housekeeper and that, you know, because he gets money for a housekeeper, but he doesn't do that, he does all his own work, and the money he saves from that, he gets, he's been going to East Timor to try and speak about the justice for um, the fair go, so they get a, a fair back on their royalties, and also to El Salvador too. So he's been at a lot of the meetings, and also Father Bob Maguire too, He's been fantastic, a very good, great support. And your connection with the El Salvadoran community here in Melbourne? Yeah, well, through this we've had dealings with people in the FLM who are supporting the FLM over here, um, Oscar Zulamea, and I've met other people from the um, El Salvador community too. But, you know, I've got, I'm good friends with um, Santos, who's, who was a cleaner in our office, who came from El Salvador, and she told me a lot of the stories, you know, which would just make you make you cry, fairly, the story of what happened over there. So I think she had about eight people in her family, and now there's only her and her sister left after the Civil War. When Australia what, did have a bit of a heart, and we did accept people in who were refugees from war-torn countries, you know, and it's great, to our great shame we're not doing it now. And a lot of the times those wars have been caused by us, so... But as you said right at the beginning, Kevin, the, this is just the first part of a battle. That's right. It's still going on. And also it, it needs to be... Um, the worrying part is that we've, got, we've signed on to free trade agreements with these ISDS clauses. So the China, Japan and Korea free trade agreements all contain it. More worryingly, but, is the TPP, which has been signed off by the Trade Minister, Andrew Robb. Now, that doesn't mean it's implemented... The legislation for the TPP, the yeah, TPP implementing legislation, has to be voted through Parliament. Now, we need to put all the pressure we can on the ALP to vote down that legislation because if they're any way want to be recognised as being representing you know working people in this country, they've got to vote it down. It's very very bad. It lets in, it gives more labour, more labour movement, unrestricted labour movement than any of the other eleven countries in the in the TPP. So while on the one hand, you know, you've got people saying we've got to, you know, the wages have got to get better, they're doing everything they can to drive the wages and conditions down of working people in this country. So it's very bad. It's very bad for health. It's very bad for education. And it's very bad for the public service too. You know, it allows every little compartment of the governments to be compartmentalised. And any of these 12 countries can run and tender for these, for these contracts, anything over $130,000. And if you look at the list of departments that it covers too, like it's, you know, the Australian Crime Commission, you know, it's uh, corporations from overseas, and we can see the, the dodginess of these things through the Panama paper, and even from what's happened with this um, case with Oceana Gold, is that they just set up paper companies anywhere, they go forum shopping, and to get an outcome of whatever they want. But they've got no, at the end of the day, they're just paper, and they can disappear, and there's no, no comeback on them either. So it's very bad, and I'd invite everyone to put a submission in, which can will be accepted by the um, Joint Standing Committee on Treaties until the twenty eighth of October. And no matter how small it is, please put one in, because uh, they're the things that you know will, people will take notice of when there's an outrage. And you don't see one thing about it in the mainstream media because they want it all to go through without anything saying about it at all. But if anything, you know, 
the crap that's in the in the paper now, it's just propaganda and wants to distract you from what's really happening in this country. And how do you go about putting in the submission? Well, if you go on the um, in the um, Senate website and join TPP submissions, I believe you'll probably be able to Google it. But I'll find I will get some more details for you too. But if you if you join, go on the um, TPP treaties, you should be able to sign to get it from there. Just before you go, Kevin, what's happening in the Philippines with Oceana Gold? Well, there's another good story too. <laughs> Sometimes you think there is a God. But uh, President <laughs> Duarte, like as mad as he might be, you know, and I don't believe in you know, uh, summary execution of people, what he has done is to 20 minds, he said to them about three weeks ago, you've got seven days to clean up your act. Now, I've been told from one people that the Oceana Gold has been suspended, the operation has been suspended, and other people have said, no, it hasn't been suspended because they, they haven't announced anything on the Australian Stock Exchange. The Oceana Gold shares have gone down about 3.7% in one day. What they did is that they said to those 20 mines, clean up your act, you're, you're damaging the environment, you're not giving any benefit to the people, and if you don't, you'll be shut down. And I believe it has been shut down. First of all, just before the election, there was a, a swathe of mining companies were given extensions on their mining permit, which can, they can do under the Philippine Mining Act 1995. And since then, uh, President Duale stopped those extensions from going through. And w- what he's done to 20 mines, he said he's closed it down. He also says that the Philippines can survive without mining too. And he's, he has also uh, cancelled the Philippines taking part in the joint military operations with the USA. I mean, that's something that no leader of the, of the Philippines has done yet. And you know, while he's not, you know, no one's perfect, he needs to be supported for those wonderful things he's doing to support the Philippines people, which other leaders of the Philippines haven't done. Yes, you can just see the result of the Didipio mine, what would have been in store for the, the people of um, El Salvador if the Oceana Gold mine there had gone ahead. Exactly. The Didipio mine is in operations, mm-hmm. and it has poisoned the water supply down there too, and there have been people murdered you know, who have been protesting it too. But as well as that, local people haven't been employed there. It's not a benefit to the country. And Oceana Gold did them earlier this year at a mining conference say that they're the lowest cost gold producer in the world. Yeah, because they're ripping people off. They're not paying any royalties to the benefit of the people there. And that's what happens. You know, shame on them. And we want to make sure that this company does pay the $8 million back to El Salvador, that it doesn't just try and get out of it because it's a shelf company, a shell company. We need to be aware of what's happening you know, behind our backs here. If we want to make this country a decent country to live in, we have to stop following the um, ideology of the two major parties, which have got a, a free market ideology, and it's just driving the world into a worse and worse condition. You know, have a look what's happening now. We're in wars all over the place, you know, with the drop of a hat. These countries are no threat to us at all. And then, you know, the poor people who get who are leaving these countries are getting demonised as refugees, you know, and all these right-wing governments are being elected in, in, in Europe. So... There's one thing, if you want to stop the refugee problem, stop making wars in their country. And if you spend a fraction of that on, on benefits, things that help those people, they'd be much better off. Well, what you've got to do is put yourself out of, you know, thinking of rationally, because the people who are designing this have a contempt for humanity. There's no other explanation for it. People have got to get off their arse and start doing something about it. Are you going to have one more meeting on the fourth Friday? Yeah, I think it's the 28th of... Um, 28th of October and we'll be saying it's totally morally bankrupt country that they've got to pay their $8 million to, uh, to El Salvador and they want to get, the people of El Salvador want them out of that country and also and the people in the Philippines want them out as well 
And the address for that demo? It's 357 College Street, Melbourne. And please, I know people say, oh, you know, get out there and do something, you know. Don't leave it for people. People are getting murdered over there because they're doing it. You know, we can do it here. So, you know, we start to stop, put things in priority and give some support for people who want it and need it. Thanks, Jan. And thanks to Kevin Bracken from the MUA. And that's 357 Collins Street in the city. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it's 12pm on Friday. Hope to see you there. That's all for me. I'm actually won't be here next week, but I'll be here the week after. So I'll say goodbye now and I'll be back in two weeks' time. Bye for now.